0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit CreeksideCommunity.org. Good morning. Good Good to see all of you, uh, the Christmas spirit and all that. You know, in the, uh, early days of the church, Peter and John went to the temple to pray. And, and on their way, they encountered a, a beggar who had been lame from birth. And uh, Peter told him, he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I'll give to you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene walk. And Peter, uh, always Mr. Enthusiasm, reached out and grabbed the guy by the hands and pulled him up and this man who had never walked before suddenly found strength in his legs and he began walking and leaping and praising God. And, and this got a big crowd from the temple surrounded them and never one to miss an opportunity, Peter began to preach the gospel to them. He said, uh, why do you look at us as if we by our own power or piety made him walk? And he talked to them about Jesus. Well, about that time, the, the temple authorities came and were upset that, these people were not on their designated list of, of people who could teach in the temple, and they had Peter and John arrested. And the following day, they were brought to try, be tried by the, the council. And the prosecutor said, by what power, what name have, have you done this? And, and Peter said, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a, a benefit done to this sick man let it be known to you is the name of Jesus the Nazarene, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. This man is now in perfectly good health. And that brings us to Acts 4.13, because that's what I wanted to focus on this morning. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and begin to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This council had tried a lot of people over the years, and they were used to seeing intimidated, fearful people, afraid to say a word, and angry, defiant rebels. What they weren't used to seeing was calm confidence. In fact, they'd only seen it once before, when in in the last few months they had tried Jesus. And uh, even though he's on trial for his life, he he seemed to be more in charge of the trial than they were. They kind of felt like they were on trial before him. Didn't defend himself. He didn't explain himself. He seemed to know exactly what was going to happen and calmly accepted it. And that influenced them profoundly. And now... Several months later, they're seeing the same thing in these untrained, blue collar guys who had just performed a noteworthy miracle. How could Jesus be so confident? And how could his disciples be so confident? For the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're looking at four Psalms about the coming king, about the Messiah who was predicted in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. We looked at Psalm 2 and the uh, conquering king. We looked at Psalm 22 and the crushed king. And today we're going to look at uh, Psalm 16 and the confident king. And, And the secret, I think, of why Jesus and every man and woman of God can be confident even in the worst of situations. So let's pray, and and pray that God will, will speak to you out of his word today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for the way your spirit speaks to our hearts through it. We want to remember again that we cannot learn apart from you teaching. We pray you'll speak to us And help us to understand how to apply these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, why do we think that Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm? Well, because the early church believed that. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his first sermon, I want to read a little bit of that. He says, men of Israel... since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, and Peter quotes from Psalm 16 here, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or to the place of the dead, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David had had died about a thousand years before Pentecost, and uh, everybody knew his tomb was in Jerusalem because uh, a lot of his wealth was buried with David. And uh, the government would periodically go into the tomb and, and take some of that wealth to pay um, current expenses. And so everybody knew that David had definitely decayed and, and died. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he neither was abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Peter says, Psalm 16 says the Messiah will rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. So this is a a psalm that is written about the Messiah, but it's also written about David. And so I want to look at how David imperfectly and Jesus perfectly fulfilled this as why both could be confident. So let's look at verse 1. And, and the circumstances of this song Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I used to think that courage was the absence of fear and that I was very courageous when I didn't feel fear. But then I realized that fear was always just below the surface, waiting to break out. When my circumstances changed, my courage changed. I, I, I played a lot of games of rugby, and I can't think of one that at the kickoff my knees didn't get weak, and I said, why are you out here? As uh, uh, kickoff, my position was in the front row, 10 yards away from some very large fit men who wanted to pound me in the ground. I've been sharing my faith for 55 years, and yet there's never a time when I'm called on to share my faith with somebody that I don't get just as scared as the first time I did it. And now in my latter years... Um, I find every new ache and pain. There's just a chill of dread, oh no. Is this what I'm gonna die of? <laughs> I find that fear is always with me. It just takes circumstances to, to, uh, to reveal. Isn't that true? So courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do what you have to do in spite of your fear, and with confidence. And that's the situation David is in. Preserve me, oh God. He's scared, for I take refuge in you. And that's the secret of David's courage, David's confidence, the secret of Jesus' confidence, and the secret of everybody's confidence is we find our confidence by taking refuge in God. And in this psalm, David says taking in confidence in God means three things. First of all, it means making God my good. Then it means making God my strength. And last, making God my hope. So I hope you'll find this as practical as I have, just in terms of practically how to find confidence when you need it and courage in the Lord This is what David did. This is what Jesus did. This is what the followers of Jesus have done for centuries. Let's look at finding our, our, making the Lord my good. David says, I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. David says, God is the author of good. Therefore, I don't look for good for anywhere but God. If it doesn't come from God, it's not good, no matter how good it might look. Because every good thing, every perfect gift is from God, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadows. Because God is my good. He works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That his best is my best. And if he doesn't give it to me, I don't want it because it's not good because it didn't come from him who was good. As long as I think there is good somewhere other than God and his plan for me, I'll be double-minded. I'll be unable to put my trust in him. But David says, the Lord is my good. Therefore, I look to him and him alone for good. No one is good like him. And this gave David incredible moral clarity. Look what he says. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Because God is my good, I love the people God loves. That's what he means by saints. Saints aren't special people of God. Saints are all the people of God. And David says, I love the people that God loves. I oppose the people who oppose God because he's my good. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied, and I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. In in the idol ceremonies that were practiced then, uh, the worshiper would often drink the blood of the animal or whatever was sacrificed. And David says, I won't participate in that as they're false gods. I will not pray for these people. I oppose those who oppose God. I love those who love God. And not only did David say, I love the people of God, he says, I love the things that God gives me. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. David didn't look to his father for his inheritance. David looked to God for his inheritance. He says, God is my inheritance. Whatever God chooses to give me, that's what I want. Whatever God doesn't choose to give me, I don't want that. I think the lines that fall to me in pleasant places is talking about boundary lines of the inheritance that God gave him. That's, that's what he's saying there. When David was serving King Saul, you probably remember the story, Saul becomes jealous of him and puts, tries to put David to death, and David has to flee for his life. However, even though Saul was trying to kill him, David refused to lift his hand against Saul because he said, Saul is God's anointed. God put him, made him king. God will have to remove him as king. I will not lift my hand against him. Even though he had opportunities to kill him many times, he refused, refused to kill him. He trusted God. He didn't want anything God didn't want him to have. However, David only practiced this imperfectly because he was an imperfect man. He fled from Saul for years, but eventually Saul was killed by the Philistines and David was anointed king. And once David was anointed king and life got easy, David started to make other things his good besides God. You probably remember the story. He made women his good. Deuteronomy 17:17. God gives orders about the kings that would be the kings of Israel. And one thing he says is they shall not multiply wives for they will turn their heart from me in doing so. And David did that. David began to marry. He wasn't satisfied with one wife. He married a number of women, bore children through all of them, but even then he wasn't satisfied. And one day when he was in his palace, he looked out and he saw uh, the wife of one of his soldiers bathing. He had her brought into his palace and they slept together. And soon afterwards, she said he was pregnant. So she was pregnant. And so he had his, that, her husband uh, killed in battle and he married her as his wife and brought incredible guilt and distress upon himself. He repented, God forgave him, but he was never the same man afterwards. He let his children grow up and do whatever they want, which is another sad story. What David did imperfectly in making God his only good, Jesus did perfectly because this is a psalm, not only about David, it's a psalm about Jesus. One day, a a man came to Jesus with a question and he said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Isn't that true? Jesus, as the perfect human being, modeled what every human being needs to believe about God, god that there's only one person in the universe who's actually good, the source of all good, and that is God. And Jesus believed in the all good God at all times. You can see this in his temptation. Remember the temptation? He, he had fasted for 40 days and the devil came to him and said, if you're a son of God, turn these stones into bread and eat. And Jesus says, it is written Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of God. God is my good, and obedience to his word satisfies me more than even food. Then the devil took him to the top of the temple, and he says, If you're the son of God, prove it. Just jump off. And Jesus says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. God is good. And he doesn't need to be forced to show me he's good. He'll, he'll, he will he'll is good to me no matter what. And then the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant of time and said, all these belong to me. If you'll worship me, I'll give them all to you. Well, Jesus is going to have them all anyway. But it's a shortcut. It's a shortcut. He doesn't have to go through the cross. doesn't have to go through the suffering, the humiliation, all the pain of, of following God's will to become king of the earth. And and Jesus said, be gone, Satan, Uh, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. God is the only one worthy of worship, and I embrace his plan because his plan is good, even if it involves suffering, because that's... I, I will not trust in you. Jesus only found his good in God. And, and you can see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached a God who was so much better than the God the, that Israel believed in. He was a God who was kind to the evil and the ungrateful. And not only was he kind to the evil and the grateful, but he said, "Ah, I will bless you if you're kind and uh, to your enemies. He's a God who shows mercy to those who show mercy and forgives those who forgive. He's a God who, who uh, takes care of the grass of the field and the birds of the air. And won't he take care of you, O men of little faith? He's a God who reserves the best to those who seek him first and put him first. and their... Jesus believed that God is good. And that was the foundation of his faith, why he could be confident in the worst of all situations, because he knew that, I want what God wants for me, because God is good, God could not be any better, I can't improve on His plan, and I trust that." Does that make sense? So how do we apply it? I want to go to a verse in, in a couple of verses in First John, because I think this brings it out. First John four. We have come to know, John writes, and have believed the love which God has for us. That's what makes you a Christian, by the way. A Christian is a person who believes that God loves them. Why does a Christian believe that God loves us? us. Why? Because Because he died for us. He sent Jesus, his son, to die for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in the while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. If there's anybody that believes that God loves us, it should be us because we've come to know and experience God's love. God is love and the one who abides in God abides in God and God abides in him. God is good because God is love. Because God is perfect love, he can't be anything but good. And if you believe that, you will abide in God. Abide means to be at home at. It means where we dwell. So we dwell day by day in God's love, trusting in God's love. And as we trust in God's love, we exhibit that love to other people. That's what he means by abide in love. That love kind of becomes the air we breathe. By this, love is perfected with us. By this, we Become lovers like God. That's what perfected means. It means we we get good at it because we practice it all the time. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Who will be confident in the day of judgment? People who love people who love. That's going to be where most of the points on the final are when we stand before God. How did you do in loving the people where I put you? Does that make sense? And, and I'm sure all of us say, oh gosh. But, <laughs> but if you want to be confident, focus on growing in love. And the way we grow in love is by focusing on how good God is and how much he loves us. That's the final Now uh, now John gives us a midterm to see how we're doing in being perfected in love. Would you like a quick check to see how you're doing in being perfected in love? There is no fear in love, but perfect love or mature love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears is not perfected in love yet. So if you want to see how you're doing in believing that God is good, that God is love, look for fear. How much fear is there in my life? Because the person who doesn't fear, he doesn't fear because he knows God loves him, that God is good, that God's will couldn't be any better, and I can love the people around me with the love that God loves me with. But if I'm afraid, and if I'm always looking out for me, and I'd like to help you, but you know I've got to take care of myself here. If fear plays a role in my life, well, I'm just not perfected in love yet. I still need to grow. Does that make sense? So the reason that, that David and Jesus and saints throughout the centuries have been confident is because they made God their only good. They didn't look for good apart from God. Because if it doesn't come from God, it's not good for me. Does that make sense? Confidence is a result of making God our good. Secondly, it's making God our strength. That's the second thing here. Do you remember the story of Goliath? Familiar story. Goliath was a really big Philistine. And when Israel was fighting the Philistines under King Saul... Goliath came to the front of the troops and he challenged any Israelite to come and fight him. He says, if if you beat me, we'll be your slaves. We we don't have to have a war here. We can just settle it right just between you and me. And if I beat him, you'll be our slaves. And all the soldiers of Israel said, let me at him, (laughs) right? No, they shook. They said, have you seen how big that guy is? I'm not going to fight. Well, I'm not going to fight him either. And so this went on for for weeks. Every day, the army of uh, the Israelites, the army of the Philistines would face each other. Goliath would come out and make his challenge, and everybody would shake, and nobody came out. Well, David was just a kid, and he brought food to his brothers on the front line, and so he was there that day when, when Goliath made his challenge, and, and David reacted differently than anybody. He says, what will be done for the man who kills this uncircumcised Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Well, that was different. Nobody had talked like that before. So they took David to Saul, and, and David says, I'll kill the guy. He says, when a lion or a bear steals one of my dad's sheep, I go out and kill him. And the Lord who enabled me to kill the lion and the bear will enable me to take this guy on. And so the next day when when Goliath comes out and makes his challenge, there's a little guy there with a sling and a stick. And Goliath is just incensed that they would send out him. But David says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whose armies you have, have insulted, and he will give you into my hand today. Is exactly what happened. Goliath didn't have a chance because he was fighting with God. David found his confidence in God Not because he was strong, but because God was strong. And that's what he says here. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Where did David go when he needed wisdom? Went to God. Where did David go when he needed strength? Where did David go when he needed stability? See, David understood that our purpose in life is not to impress people with our wisdom, our strength, or our abilities. Our purpose in life is to be a display case of God's strength, God's ability, God's wisdom. And what David did imperfectly, Jesus did perfectly. You know, it's, it's easy as Christians to think, well, of course Jesus did miracles. He was God. And we forget that to become a human being and redeem humanity, Jesus took all of our limitations on himself and he laid aside all of his abilities as God. He lived by faith just like we have to live by faith. Look at these verses. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in the same way. The words I speak, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his work. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things just as the Father taught me. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. How did Jesus do miracles? The Father living in him, did them through him. He did them by faith. That's why God even worked through Jesus apart from Jesus. Remember the story of the woman with uh, uh, the hemorrhage who who reaches out to touch the hem of his garment because she says, if I just touch him, I'll get healed. And sure enough, she gets healed as soon as she does. And Jesus says, who touched me? And he said, what do you mean, who touched you? You're in a crowd. He said, no, somebody touched me because I felt the power go out of me. God worked through Jesus even when Jesus was not even choosing to have him work. That's the way Jesus, and that's why Jesus could say, truly, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do shall he do also, and greater works than these uh, will you do because I go to the Father. How did Jesus do miracles? By faith. How do we do miracles? Same way, by faith. You get that? Jesus had his strength in God, and we put our strength in God. And that's why Jesus prays more than anybody in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? How often Jesus prays? Because prayer is the way he laid hold of God's strength and stability, and courage, and guidance. And that's why in the darkest night of his life, when he is struggling with going to the cross, he says to his disciples, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you're not praying, you don't really believe that God is your strength. Because I only pray because I know how dependent I am on God. How much I need him! I I've learned that I never feel confident until I get started, until I step out. Because if I don't have need faith to step out on faith, I want exercise faith. I am scared to death when I'm going to serve God, but when I step out on faith, God takes over and speaks and strengthens and guides. But I have to put myself in that situation too. And that's when I'm confident. And that's the way Jesus was confident. And that's the way the disciples were confident, believing that God is our strength. Does that make sense? David and Jesus and the saints that have followed are confident in God because they make God their good. I don't want anything but what God has for me. And they make God their strength. I'm not strong, but he is. And finally, they make God their hope. And in this last part of the psalm, David moves from present tense to future tense. Look what he says. Therefore, because you're my strength and my good, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever." Because God is good and God is my strength today, He will be good and my strength tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. He is my hope. He is why I can be courageous and hopeful and confident about my future because He's the same God. That's what David is saying. I think that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as He's struggling, to believe God and trust God in the garden he's saying he says is, is God really gonna gonna save me is God gonna gonna raise me from the dead or am I gonna be stuck in Hades forever is my flesh gonna decay I think he called to mind this psalm and grew strong in faith knowing that what God had promised he was able to fulfill which God did and God did not allow his flesh to undergo decay, but raised him uh, in a a new eternal body. And by the way, this is the same way we can have hope for our future. Because Jesus rose, we will rise. And on the day you die, whether it's today or a hundred years from now, on the day we die, we will not be aware of dying. Amen. Because he who believes in him will never see death, Jesus said. But we will step from this world and we'll find ourselves in the eternal Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, in the presence of our loved ones and see all these people who have gone on before us and they'll be so happy to see us And we'll see Jesus. And Jesus will not be unfamiliar to us. That'll be the strange thing. You'll think, you know, you are the same Jesus who's been with me all these years, who's been working in me all this time. And we'll recognize ourselves that we are the person we knew we could be but never really realized and all of a sudden we realize we have become that person that he made us to be. And the colors are gonna be so much more vibrant and the air is gonna be so much clearer and our joy will be so much keener and we'll think, this is what I've been waiting for. People of faith live for the future. Look what Hebrews 11 says. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. People of faith know this world is not our home. And that's why people of faith find their treasure in heaven. That's why we can endure suffering and loss now because we know this isn't all there is. That because God is good, he's got a much better place for us than this. That he's prepared a city for us. Isn't that amazing? The heavenly Jerusalem, where we'll be with angels and righteous people made perfect and Jesus and and all of our friends And that's why we can put aside the distracting things of this imperfect world and live to please God and live. Do you want to go there? Let me show you how. John writes, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Where is eternal life? Eternal life is in Jesus. So if you want eternal life, you've got to have Jesus, right? He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, not hope, but so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're not confident that the day that God calls you home, you will immediately be in his presence, full of joy, you need Jesus. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive your sins. Repent and turn from ruling your own life. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and he will come in. And when you get him, you get eternal life as part of the bargain. Because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So if he's in heaven, you got to be in heaven too, right? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your guidance. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you're the only good God. You're our only good And you only do us good. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to be our Savior, that we might live with you forever. Thank you that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he prepares a place, he'll return and take us to him. Lord, I pray that you will use these words to strengthen our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.